morning. Can we just thank God for our worship leaders this morning? Um, I think there's some things in our church that we can sometimes take for granted. And our team, um, yeah, every week just faithfully goes before the Lord. And um, what we get to experience is out of an overflow for what they encounter and what they experience on a day-to-day basis. So, um, yeah, just wanted to thank God for you guys leading us in worship, reminding us of the hope that we have in Christ and how beautiful he is. So um, before we begin, let's go before the Lord one more time um, and ask for his help um, today. Father, in days like this, um, my weaknesses before my eyes, my inability to change circumstances, but my inability to change people is ever-present, Lord. And so, God, I ask for your help. Father, we need to hear from you. Father, we don't need to be entertained. We need to be reminded of the things that have proven themselves to be true and timeless from the very beginning of time. God, that can only be found in your word. And so I pray that, God, at the end of the day, your word would stand before us and it would not only expose us, God, but it would give us hope. That it would point us towards you and what your plans are for us, God. Father, I ask that your spirit would be present, would move and work in our hearts in such a way to help us to fall more and more in love with your son, Jesus Christ, and more and more in love one another. God, be with us this day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, um, during my sermon, I mentioned about God's desire for us to find full and total satisfaction in him. And during that time, I drew our attention to a few things that can sometimes compete for our affections of God. The question that I feel I posed then and the question that we have to present before ourselves on a day-to-day basis is, is God truly enough? Is God truly enough for us? In posing that question, I refer to a few things that I feel compete for those affections. For some of us, it may may mean that God is only enough as long as he comes with money. For others, it may be God is only enough as long as he gives me that spouse that I long for. For others, it may even be God is enough if he gives me that the kids that I yearn for or that job or that career, whatever it may be, we can fill that list up completely. But I also mentioned is, is God enough? Or will I want God and my blackness? During that point, I went on to expound a little bit about the idea of what it meant to be woke and what I want to bring before the church today is an apology. An apology because a topic such as that deserves more attention than just a few sentences. In the climate that we're in and with the tensions that we see right before us on Facebook and CNN and on the media, 
to even address those things requires carefulness and slowness to ensure that no one leaves unclear about the intentions or unclear about what it is that God has to say as it relates to those things. So I ask for your forgiveness in not doing that, not giving it the time and attention that it needed. But I also ask for your ear as I spend a little bit of time clarifying what I meant by those points. The idea of being woke, for those that know it, simply means to be informed about the social ills and the problems that we see in our communities and in this nation. By no means was I saying that we need to, in, um, uh, by no means was my intention to condemn those that would desire or have pursued a greater understanding in those matters. I believe that full, wholeheartedly and fully that in order for us to be faithful as Christians, we need to be ever aware of the social ills that we see in our society. This was by no means to be taken as a condemnation on those who have made a life or a living, understanding and wanting to know our history. My only intention was to put those things in proper perspective according to God's word. That at the end of the day, even our human history or our ethnic backgrounds, the only way we can see those things clearly is through the lens of God's word. That we need divine revelation to even help us to identify and to address the issues that you and I face And not only the issues, but even the emotions that come and rise to the surface as we learn about our past. The idea of wokeness can seem as though I'm addressing one group of people only, black and brown minorities. But I think the call was to the church as a whole to elevate or to not allow our understanding of our culture or our history to now trump what God has clearly said in his word. That is my only plea and our only call for us as a church, is to be reminded that God's word stands as the ultimate authority in our lives. Amen? This leads me to our text today as we continue through the book of 2 Peter. I titled this message, Daily Reminders for One Purpose and One Purpose Only. In our Christian lives, sometimes we can find ourselves becoming so familiar with God that our approach to him becomes casual. We can continue on the journey of learning about who God is and what he's done for us, but somewhere along the line, our hearts can fall into a place of where the Things like grace and his mercy and his forgiveness become boring. We can almost feel as though being reminded of the old things, the fundamentals of our faith, the truths that we hold to so dearly, no longer intrigue us. We can have the mentality of, man, I know that already. Tell me something new. We can wind up being in a place to where We want to be more impressed and entertained by the speaker than the very one who's given him words in the first place. My caution and the caution that I think that Peter is giving to us in this text is that what we need is not new and fresh and 
clever things to learn. What we need is to be reminded of the old things. Think of it like this. Whether you're at work or in your car, you turn on your Spotify radio or your Pandora playlist, and you may be driving going along your day. And then all of a sudden, your jam comes on. And it's like in an instant, you're taken back to a time, and it rouses up all these emotions. You start bobbing your head. You start reciting the, the lyrics of the song, and it's like, man, I'm taken back to a time that was so enjoyable and so great. Why? I think because we know that this is an oldie but goodie. We've heard it so many times, but the moment that we hear it again, it's like, man, that still go hard. For us as Christians, the gospel is an oldie but goodie. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get boring. It doesn't somehow need to be packaged or put in a way that becomes somewhat more entertaining. No, the goodness of what God has done for us is good for us today and will be good for us for eternity. This is the good news that we have today. Last week we focused on God's work for us and in us. God is the one that established our faith. He does all of the heavy lifting. He gives a gift to us. He tells us what he's given to us is precious. And then he points us to the very means by which that faith that we've been given came about. This week, however, we're going to look at now that we know what God has done for us, Now that we know that what God has provided for his people, what should we do? How do we respond to God's goodness in a way that would continue to exalt him and proclaim and testify of the very reality that we're claiming has taken place in our lives? So if you would join me as we go to God's word, we're going to be in 2 Peter, verses 5 through 15. Let me read that before we begin. He says in verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, Even though you know them and are established in the truth, you now have. I think it is right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. For those unfamiliar with who Peter is, he was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. Here we find ourselves at the 
second letter, and I think that in this particular letter, what Peter is going to want to address for us is the idea that one can be Christian without any signs or evidences of a changing or of a change that's taking place in their lives. Peter writes initially to an audience of people within the church who would proclaim and testify that one could be a Christian and yet abandon any call to ethical or moral standards. For those who grew up in the South or grew up in this country, over, overwhelmingly over 50% of this nation would identify themselves as Christians. Many of us can probably recall co-workers and neighbors and people that we interact with and are around who, if they had to check off which faith they held to on an application, they would identify themselves as being Christian. And yet when we look at their lives, there's really no evidence of that reality. This is the lie that Peter is hoping to address and to help us identify is that one, God is in the business of changing people. God doesn't just save us so that we can stay the same. God saves us with the intention of producing something within us. And so here in verse 5, we find ourselves with this verse, for this very reason, or for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Let's stop there. He says, for this reason. Another way of saying this is that in light of all that God has done to give us our faith, to provide us with resources to ensure that we can produce this godliness that's in us, he wants to shed light on what is our motivation. What makes Christianity so different from other religions is we're not working for God's acceptance. We're not working to somehow now earn God's love and favor. Our interactions with God are not like our interactions of a high school crush or a middle school crush. Y'all remember them days where in school you found a girl or a guy that you liked and the guy may write you a little note that says, will you be my girlfriend? Check yes or no. And so you're waiting all day like, man, like when is she going to respond? Like, are you going to be my girl or not? And what you can find yourself is that even when she says yes, the next day you could be on the playground and it's like she doesn't even know you, right? And so you find yourself moping and slumming around and you may see one of those daisies on the ground. And so you pick up the daisy and you're, man, does she loves me? She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. There's a suspicion of, man, like, is this relationship that I thought I entered into really what it, I hoped or, intent or thought it was going to be? That's not how God interacts with us. When God saves a person, he's bound to them. When God commits to a person, there's nothing that can separate, him, separate them from him. Our motivation is fueled by the reality that God himself has provided what we couldn't provide for ourselves. God supplies us with faith. He gives us resources, bountiful resources, treasures. He opens up the vault and says, take all that you want. The means by which he's able to do this is because he recognized our need and our hopeless condition. 
talked about how the gospel is an oldie but goodie. But how often do we get fatigued with hearing the same old thing? The gospel. God seeing our condition. Entering into our circumstances in the flesh of man. In the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus now becoming a substitute for us. Living the life we couldn't live. But now standing in the place that we alone deserve because of our offenses towards God. Jesus takes our sin upon himself, dies, is crushed. The fullness of God's wrath poured down on him, though you and I deserve to experience that. And then now he offers to us this free gift of life. The free gift of knowing God, not as a judge, but as our father. This is what God offers and has done for those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And so, therefore, we don't need to be motivated by anything else. God has done enough. We have to remember that the first four verses of this Bible, the first four four verses of this text, make no mention of us doing anything. That's not how this scripture starts off. That's not how the Bible starts off, with our efforts. The Bible begins with a good and gracious God stepping in and providing and making something exist when there was absolutely nothing. God has truly done all the heavy lifting for us. There was a show in uh, the early 2000s called um, Extreme Home Makeover, right? Anybody from, remember that show? Does it still come on? Does it still come on? No, it's off. All right. So the premise behind the show was you have this family that's been selected, and the, sto- the show always starts with kind of a backdrop or a history of kind of what's been taking place with this family. At one point, they own the house. Life circumstances hit, whether it be loss in the family of a job or an illness, and they no longer can keep their home up. Their condition seems hopeless. As the story goes on, you have this group of people step in and say, hey, we're going to send you on vacation. We're going to fix everything. We're going to give you a brand new house of your dreams. And so this family goes on vacation. And so while they're gone, you have these people, sometimes they're demoing the house. Sometimes they're um, doing any of the necessary repairs. But what their intentions are is that the house that you left when you return will be brand new. The people who were sent away, that viewed where they were as a hopeless condition, when they return and that bus is standing before the house, they utter the words, move that bus, right? And it's like in an instant, what was at one point invisible, in an instant is made plain. In an instant, they can see it for the first time, and they're blown away. Why? Because it wasn't just that they built a house that met all their expectations. The house that they're now provided with goes beyond their expectations, beyond anything that they could ever ask or imagine. Now, do you think these people will respond to those that have been given a gift with, man, that's too big of a house, man. How am I going to keep that house clean? What are my bills going to be like? 
that would point to a sense of ungratefulness. That would be not appreciating all of the hard work and all of the labor that went into making the gift actually tangible and possible for you to experience or for them to experience. This is what God has done for us. God has seen our condition, and he said, I see where you're at right now. But I'm going to enter in, and I'm going to take what is old, and I'm going to totally get rid of it. And I'm going to do that for those that place their trust in Jesus Christ. So that that way, when you come back, and once you realize what I'm offering to you in its beauty, and its magnif- uh, and, and the magnitude of the gift that I'm offering, now all you have to do is get those keys, turn the knob, and enjoy it. And enjoy me. God is not calling us simply to be uh, simply to obligate obligation. God is calling us to enjoyment. He doesn't ask us to do things simply so he can rob us of pleasure or even rob us of enjoyment in life. He's not a killjoy. God asks us to do things for him because he knows that true joy will only be found in him. That's our motivation. That's what motivates the Christian. God has already given us his love. He's already given us his acceptance. He's already determined what blessings he will have. He's already committed to us, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. But not only is he wanting to draw our attention to our motivation, he wants to draw our attention to our responsibility or our role. It's not enough to be okay with just being saved. It's not enough to think that God was only after providing us with hell insurance. That that would make God to be so little and so minuscule. God is after us to fully find satisfaction and enjoyment in him. So he says, what is our role? Well, for this reason, let your motivation now cause you to make every effort to supplement your faith. One writer quotes it like this, God feeds the birds of the air every day. But that doesn't mean that he puts worms in their nest. There are some things that God is going to require you and I to do. He's not going to just say, hey, man, I'm going to do all the work, and then you can sit in your comfy recliner and simply think that you're going to grow by doing nothing. tells us to make every effort to supplement your faith. I want to hear everybody say, everybody say every. Every. If we are to think of making every effort to supplement our faith, think of it in this way. None of you, when you were conceived and birthed, were able to dictate what type of body you would have. When you were born, what you have You've been given everything necessary in order to survive. You have muscles to move. You have lungs to breathe. You have a mind to be able to think and to process and to filter through and navigate throughout life. However, if you desire to grow and become stronger, 
if you desire to see your body reach its maximum potential, there's a few things that you can do. You can diet and you can work out. You see, it's not that you don't have everything that you need in order to survive. It's that in order to become stronger, you've got to put in some effort. You've got to work it out. You've got to monitor your intake, which ultimately will affect your outtake. Our spiritual lives function in a similar way. We've got to be careful not to believe the ideology that we are to let let go and to let God. We've got to remove from our understanding that because God has done everything, then that means that we're required to do nothing. God makes clear to us, it's not about us pulling our bootstraps up and and doing everything in our own power and in our own energy. No, Philippians 2, 12b to 13 says this. should be up on the screen. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to act for his good purpose. Spiritual growth means that, or spiritual growth involves all of God's resources as the foundation. What God has done and what he has giving to, given to us, that's the foundation. However, it will also require our maximum effort if we desire to grow. This flies directly in the face of anyone who would claim that once you're a Christian, you can do nothing and think that you're going to grow into maturity. Even an infant has to get to a place to where they're no longer dependent on people to spoon feed them, but that they can eat for themselves. That they can do the things that are going to help them mature and grow so that they can be a productive adult. In the same way in the church and in God's family, that means that when we are saved, we are infants in Christ. It's going to require other people to help teach us God's word, to help build up and develop muscles and strength. But ultimately, the goal is that you will get to a place of Christian maturity where you won't be only dependent upon the pastor to teach you God's word, where you won't only be dependent upon your accountability partner to keep you in check. There has to be a change that takes place in your life to where you can walk out the Christian faith in power and strength, obeying what God has called us to do so that we can now in turn go back and help those that are behind us. This is what God is calling us to do. He says supplement your faith, though. Supplement your faith with what? Begins with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I want to spend some time here because it's going to be impossible for us to actually apply and to give maximum effort to what God's calling us to do if we don't understand what this laundry list of things really is. He says, first, goodness. The goodness referred here isn't simply the mention of how people say, oh, that's a good person. That's not what he's referring to. What God is referring to when he says goodness is really moral excellence. It's a level of living that's 
congruent and in line with the standard of who and the depiction of who God really is. We went on an anniversary trip um, almost a month ago now. And uh, we went on this shop as we were waiting for uh, to go tubing. And you know, as these touristy shops, they always have like little souvenirs and things like that. So um, me and my homeboy were looking at this rack of all these clever sayings. And one of the sayings that really stood out to me was this, this, uh, this verse, and it says, live your life so that your pastor won't have to lie at your, your funeral. And boy, that joint was so funny, but it was so real. We can get caught up in thinking that, oh, I'm saved. I can go and live however I please. It doesn't really matter what I'm doing because, yeah, I'm going to do me. I'm good. I'm, I'm saved. I've said the prayer. I've walked down the aisle. I've been baptized. What holds true to the tradition of Christianity is that there is a standard of living. There is a marker that has been both displayed and perfectly fine-tuned in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can look to Jesus as the example of how we should live, and if we're looking to Jesus, that means we're without excuse. Jesus has modeled the life that he desires for us to live perfectly, and now following Jesus means that we follow in suit with what he has already done for us. Biblical maturity upholds a standard, not our man-made standards, but God's standard. It means that when we go to God's word, we're not just reading for education only. We're reading to actually become what we see outlined in Scripture. Paul's going to speak to this as well when he says in uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, he says, this is the message we have heard him declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and, do not, and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Our behavior should dictate who we belong to. Our, dict- our behavior should reveal and should match and line up with the profession that we make with our own lips. I want to be clear that this is not a call for perfection. Not by no means. To be a Christian does not mean that we're holier than thou. To be a Christian does not mean that we need to broadcast this false sense of perfection to those that are not Christian. To be a Christian means that my striving, my aim, my energy is to obey the word of God. And when I fail... And when my life doesn't fully line up with what I see in Scripture, then what's marked by a true Christian is that we confess our sins. We acknowledge that God's standard is perfect 
and I have failed, but that doesn't speak against or negate the standard being there. God wants for us, what he wants for us, is for us to make every effort to pursue and strive for moral excellence. That's the first thing. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop with having a level of morality. He says that, no, that morality needs to be informed by something. And so he moves on and he says, goodness with knowledge. Knowledge for us, many of us who have gone through school, whatever it is, knowledge often is only thought of in terms of trying to pass a test. We need information to help us get to our next destination. That's not the knowledge the Bible is talking about here. This knowledge has an emphasis on it being applied knowledge. It has an emphasis of, similar to those that are married, it's a knowledge that comes through relationship and learning about an individual, learning the things that they like and dislike, learning how to speak to them, um, learning how to love them rightly. That's the knowledge that this is talking about. God wants our morality to be influenced, yes, through the lens or through the intake of God's word, but there's a knowledge that will help us to discern and navigate throughout this life that can only happen when we apply God's word. One of the beauties of being a part of a church like this, where you have people committed to not only knowing God's word, but teaching God's word and giving it to one another, is what Pastor John alluded to earlier. There are things that we do in this church, in the life of this church, are simply meant to help you guys know God better. But I want to caution us not to rely solely on what we as a church provide for you. God has given each of you his word, and if he's given each of you his word, then that means that you don't have to wait till a Wednesday night Bible study to discuss it. You don't have to wait until a Sunday service to be confronted with it or to even intake it. God gives you his word so that in our social gatherings, we can actually discuss the things that we're reading in Scripture. God gives us his word so that when we go out canoeing, all of our conversation doesn't have to be superficial about things that really don't matter. We have the opportunity to now discuss the Jesus that we love and to ask one another questions. There is not one person in this room has all the answers. There is not one person in this room, no matter how smart you think you are, that has all the answers. If we have God's word, then that means that I need you and you and you in order for me to fully understand who God is. Because there's things that God will teach you, not for solely for your own benefit, but for the benefit of somebody else. This is what it means to be a part of the community and the family of God, is that we all are equally important. We're diverse. There's many members, but God gives us gifts. God gives us the ability to know him for who he is so that we can help our brother and sister see him just a little bit more clear. That's the type of knowledge that we have to make strides to do. So we want to encourage members of our church, those who are not members, those that desire to be members, to say, come to the Wednesday night Bible studies. Load up on all the questions. Read the text that we're going to study before the time and come with questions so that we can help you grow in your understanding. But also with that, after church on Sunday, when you go and have lunch with somebody, 
just take one scripture and say, let's talk about this. What does this mean to you? What are you, what are you getting out of the scriptures? During our times with prayer, brother, if you know people who are strong in their understanding of what prayer is, then say it requires a humility for us to say, man, can you help me understand that better? Can you share with me what God has been teaching you? This is what Christian fellowship and community really looks like. Knowledge. We don't just need knowledge and we don't just need a level of morality, but we need self-control. Can somebody say amen to that? There's this documentary that came out called What the Health. I'm sure everybody in here knows about it. And really what What the Health did was was divide the entire world um, for those who are vegans and everybody else, right? Well, my wife and I, we said, okay, we're going to try this, right? Got to lose a few pounds, get this baby weight off me, all this stuff. So we're like, yo, we're going to go and become a vegan, right? <laughs> Chris, you laughing too hard. We're going to become vegan. So we've been going two weeks strong, and it's been hard. Yeah, I know two weeks, right? That's a long time. But there's these moments where, you know, I'll be out to eat, or I like to watch food, the Food Network, and, you know, they always, food always looks more appetizing when your diet is like vegetables and quinoa, right? So I'm, I'm looking on the TV, and I just see, you know, these beautiful, luscious, juicy steaks and potatoes with, I know, right? All the keto people in here are like, yeah, I don't have that problem. I don't have that problem. But it's those moments where, man, like, I'm just passionate about food. I'm a foodie. And so it's hard when you love food to now be restricted in some ways to a certain, to certain types of food. There's hard decisions that we have to make. Of course, vegans, we have to make decisions like cucumbers and kale and ribeye steaks and buttery biscuits and, you know, peach cobbler and all that good stuff, man. It's hard decisions. However, it's not that my passion for food has to be alleviated. No, I can still love food. But it does need to be redirected towards things that are healthy for me. Things that are going to help me get to the ultimate goal or destination that, um, that I want to be at. Self-control really isn't the removal of passions, but it's us putting a leash on our passions. And let me rephrase that. It's not us putting a leash on our passions. It's God putting a leash on our passions. It's God redirecting the passions that he's given us to be put in its proper place so that when it's there, it can roam freely and enjoy. Self-control means that I'm not going to go to Morton Steakhouse with my friends and watch them eat strips of filet mignon while I eat strips of cucumber. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to put myself in that position. But it does require for me to know myself well enough to not put myself in that position. The hardest thing that we're going to have to do is that we're going to have to get to a place where we're honest with ourselves. We like to fake and we like to lie to ourselves. We like to think that we can handle things that we know beyond a doubt, man, I cannot handle this. 
Christian maturity is being able to identify those things and say, you know what, if I put myself in that position, I know I'm going to fall, so I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to put myself in a position that's going to ultimately help me grow in my love for Jesus. This is self-control. Let's keep moving because I know I'm running out of time. We need a little endurance, though. It's not enough. If you're following a diet, you know that two weeks really ain't nothing. Two weeks is really not anything. We've got to be committed to the long haul. Endurance is needed so that as we're making these strides and efforts for Jesus Christ, there's this perception that following Jesus is easy. That all of our problems are going to somehow go out the window and life is only going to be chocolates and roses. And that's just not true. In fact, to be fully committed to making every effort to pursue these things, you're probably going to find that life gets harder. That as you're pursuing Christ and trying to live for him, you're going to find yourself thinking that today, oh man, this week has been a good week. And then out of nowhere, a death in the family comes. Out of nowhere, someone you love gets cancer. Out of nowhere, they tell you that your job is no longer going to be available. Out of nowhere, your car gets repoed. Out of nowhere, you lose your home. The question is, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to those things? Our need for endurance is really rooted in us having a perspective that even in those things, God is still sovereign. That in the hardships of life, God is still in control. And not only is he in control, but there's a purpose that is working in our favor. Endurance doesn't just happen through osmosis. Endurance happens when we have a change of perspective. Look at how James describes the change of perspective we should have as we look through the suffering and the trials that come to our lives. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. How often do you find yourself grumbling and complaining at life's circumstances rather than rejoicing in the work that God's doing through them? Let me say that again. How often do you find yourselves grumbling and complaining with how your life is shaping itself out to be? rather than rejoicing and knowing that God is using all of those things to move us towards maturity, to produce endurance with us. It's amazing to see how as you walk and are faithful with God and you begin to apply his word and trust in his word, that you may encounter the same thing over and over again, but every time you do it, you can recall God's faithfulness and you can see how, man, that job that I lost That almost led me to despair. I've seen God's goodness in that. And so now, instead of being led to despair, I'm going to be led to my knees. And I'm going to trust that God is faithful to provide for me, regardless of how anything else looks. This is what Christian endurance is built on. A habitual 
and continual pattern of us allowing our faith to be expressed in the way that we live. Endurance is faith fleshed out over time. Next he goes to godliness. Talked a lot about godliness, so I just want to summarize it in one simple phrase. And it says, it refers to the behavior that simply reflects the character of God and includes a desire to please him in every area of righteous living. God has done a work in you so that the people that he places you around that don't know him can see how you live your life and what God has done in you and can start to catch that aroma, can start to sniff out, man, something's different. Something's unique about you. Why don't you do what we do? Why are you living this way? And now God can start to use those things to draw people to him. And that now gives us an opportunity to point them to the only thing which can change not only our eternity, but our hearts in the here and now. The goal of godliness is to produce Christ-likeness in us, but it's what God uses to also win those that are outside of the church. That is what God is using. He wants to change our life, and he wants us to make every effort effort to strive towards these things. He goes into brotherly affection. Godliness is needed, but we need brotherly affection. If you look around this room, you're going to see a lot of diverse faces in here. People from all different backgrounds and socioeconomic classes, and everyone here has a story. From the outside looking in, one could think that our diversity is an indicator of our unity. I would wholeheartedly believe that with the um, 200 plus members of Cornerstone Church, that we are comfortable with uniting with each other around hearing God's word proclaimed. We're comfortable with even laboring together and serving to accomplish a goal. We're probably even comfortable with hanging around one another in certain environments in certain, at certain times. <laughs> but are we comfortable when we have to discuss and talk about the real hard issues that all of us feel? Are we comfortable and are we just as committed to fighting for the unity that should exist in the church when we talk about matters of race and injustice? see, we can't be affectionate to people that we, one, don't see through the same lens that God asks us to see through. We can't be affectionate to people who we view as, oh, that's my play brother and sister. That's really not my brother and sister. Or if we only restrict our affections to the people that we get along with best, with our cliques and our circles, that's not the call that's seen here in Scripture. The call for script and the call that we have here in scripture is to not just like the idea of diversity, but actually to put every effort into being diverse, but also unified. Why is this important? In light of what's taking place in Charlottesville, the picture that the church is supposed to be to the world is of a God who brings people both near and far, black and white, Asian, Latino, whatever it is together under the unity and the bond of what Christ has done for us, and isn't just satisfied with being 
a box of crayons with a bunch of different colors, but is really committed to us saying, I'm committed to you, and I'm willing to listen to you and learn from you even when it's the hardest thing I will probably ever do. It means us saying that I'm not going to treat you on the basis of the color of your skin. I'm not going to hold you hostage to the experiences that I've had with people who look like you and have treated me a certain way. It means that I'm going to interact with you and fight to be affectionate for you on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ loving you enough to now adopt us both into the same family. That's what it means for us to strive for brotherly affection. Our church is to be a display to the world so that when they look to us, they don't see what they've seen or have always seen in the world. What they need to see with the church is both its people who genuinely love each other and are affectionate with one another in a way that is so countercultural that the only rational explanation could be that God himself has been at work. This is what we are called to do. Godliness with brotherly affection. And lastly, that idea of brotherly affection, that term is in, it's, it's, it's usually, it, it's mentioned in terms of the phileo type of love, that brotherly love, a friendship type of love. But he says that's not enough. What you need is love as well. The word that he uses for love is agape. Agape isn't just about feelings. Agape is about commitment. It's about sacrifice. It's about I'm going to hold you down and be there for you at your worst. I'm not going to abandon you because you misspoke or you said something that was out of line or you made an assumption about me based off of a misunderstanding. This type of love is about commitment. Will we give all of our energy to being committed to the things that we find in Scripture and the people that God sends for us to actually apply this towards? Brotherly affection, emotion, fuzzy feelings, friendship, love, commitment. But lastly, God is not simply after us to just make all these strides and all this effort for no reason. God is after giving assurance to his people. This is my third point. So we have our motivation. We have our responsibility or our role, but now what's our assurance? He says in these verses, verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Or in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. God wants us to have confidence in the work that he's begun in us. He doesn't want us questioning day by day, God, do you love me today or do you not rock with me today? And the means by which God has given us assurance is that as we work this stuff out, as we actually start to apply these things, We can look and say, man, if I look back at my life a year ago, man, I'm not the same person. If I look at my life five years ago, man, I used to, when they did that, I used to just want to fight them and punch them in the throat. But now God has given me patience 
God has given me restraint. God has given me self-control. So now, instead of punching you in your throat, I don't know what you're going to do, but just don't do that. I just ain't doing that. And you know what's not enough for us is just to be content with thinking that we know enough about ourselves and that we can measure our growth in and of ourselves. But God has given us a family. I'm grateful for the brothers that I've spent the last decade with. I'm thankful for the brothers I've spent the last five years with. I'm grateful for the people God has placed in this church who can look at my life back then and say, man, God is at work. That doesn't mean that there's been this massive growth spurt. There are seasons for that. There are seasons where you can identify, man, I've just grown so fast and so quick. But it does mean that there's been progress. That I can look at your life and I can see and I can identify, man, brother, I, I, I see growth. Sister, I, I see evidences of God's grace in you. And those things can help encourage us and spur us on to continue to take step by step, day by day, making strides so that one day when we stand before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what he sees in us is a picture of himself. But we need one another to do that. He says that if you see these qualities in, in growing in increasing measure, these are the things that will keep us from having only a knowledge about God, but that doesn't produce anything. Knowing facts about God, but that those facts are not changing our lives. But however, he gives us a caution as well, that there is a type of person who may profess all of the right things with their lips, but their lives don't necessarily line up with those things. There's no evidence of the reality that God has done a work in you. And for those people, the invitation is not to condemn yourself. The invitation from God is to say, don't settle for just that. The invitation is to say, this day, right here and right now, that what Christ is making available to us is that you don't have to question. You don't have to doubt you don't have to be unsure. You don't have to have a, today I may be good and tomorrow I don't know. God is offering a relationship with you so that beyond the doubt, you can know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Beyond the doubt, you can know and have taste for your own lips, the sweetness and the, the, the beauty of what it means to walk in the life that God has provided, wants to provide for you. And so that is our only plea. That is the plea and the reminder of Peter for the church is that we need to do, we need to be reminded of God's work for us and in us. But we also need to be challenged and reminded that we have plenty of work to do. We're not working for God, for his love, for his pleasure. We're working from the love and acceptance and joy that God has already given us. Join me in prayer. Father, I'm grateful that, um, yeah, that we have your word. I'm grateful that when you speak, you don't, it's, your, your, your words are not like ours in the sense that they can go out and not necessarily change anything. God, your word, you promise in your word that as it goes forth, that it returns back 
to you, accomplishing the very thing that you desired for it to accomplish. Your words produce life. Your words, your, your words create life when there was nothing. Your words alone are the very things that can produce the godliness and the character and the reflection of who your son Jesus Christ is in our lives. And I pray that we as a church, we as your people, that we would desire that above all things. That we would desire and trust that you want, what you want for us is to look more like your son Jesus Christ. Let us that be our, our eager pursuit and our primary ambition to become more and more like your son Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.